One of the foundations of our belief is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Christians, this is encouraging and belief-affirming. But what about those who have never heard the name of Christ? Should we believe that babies or the uninformed have no way to God the Father? Are Jews and Muslims shut off from God for seeking him in their way rather than through Christ? What about all the wonderful people who follow Christ's teachings of love and social justice? Mm but are turned off of religion due to unchrist-like parishes. How can we reconcile God's conditional love with conditional salvation? Amen. Thank you for asking that question. That's a, it's a bit of a doozy. You can give it to Jasmine over there. You can be excited for them. That's a, that's a pretty <laughs> tough question. All right, David and Becky have referred to a verse that is found in John chapter 14 when Jesus Christ, who we believe to be the Son of God, says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And as David and Becky pointed out with their question, this all of a sudden starts to feel really uncomfortable when you consider the global community that we're in. I grew up in church just like David and Becky, and I heard this verse often, in particular, in the way that the Christianity that I knew uh, engaged with other world religions. When it came to Muslims, I would hear people say things like, well, they're God's children too, that they're honest in what they're seeking. But when we all said what was said and done, we would get behind closed doors and Christians would say, but we have to deal with the tough words of Jesus. And if they don't know Jesus or they don't acknowledge Jesus's divinity, there's no way they're going to get to God. Not only that, but I heard this in the same discussion when we talked about people of the Jewish tradition, heritage, and religion. And when it came to this, there was this idea that there was all of these religious ideas in place, but Christians felt that as long as they stopped ignoring or stopped acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God, then there was no room for them to continue to speak to God. I also heard this line of thinking when it came to babies. Particularly, babies could not understand or comprehend or feel God's presence until they were able to speak the name of Jesus Christ and then also believe in the way of Jesus Christ. And as David and Becky pointed out, they said, what about people who do everything that Christ tells us to prioritize, which is feed the hungry, shelter those who are homeless, go and visit people in prison? What if someone does all of those things but when you ask them, are you spiritual or what is it that you believe, they say, mm, not really, I kind of think this world is all there is. Does this line from Jesus ultimately discriminate against those people and say, unless you say Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot ever comprehend who God truly is? You see, in my experience, this verse is used by many Christians as a line in the sand, right? Right? You either get with Jesus or you will never know God. And Christians point to this verse and they say, Jesus is very black and white here. Jesus leaves no wiggle room. The only way to understand God, Jesus is saying, is if someone believes and follows Jesus. And if somebody falls short of that, then they will never know God. So I grew up and I heard this verse. And I will tell you, as I was younger, this verse brought me a lot of comfort because I was on the right team, right? But then, as I grew older and became friends with people outside my religion, it started to make me more and more uncomfortable 
And I started asking questions similar to what David and Becky asked this morning. So to answer their question, what does this verse mean? And how do we rationalize this or understand it? I want to work with a pyramid. I know what you're thinking. A pyramid scheme is about to happen. I will tell you it has nothing to do with money. It's only a pyramid scheme of theology. Okay, so the reason I use the pyramid is because we're going to start with big ideas that are way bigger than the Gospel of John and then focus in as the sermon goes along to just John 14, 6. Okay, so we're going to start this sermon by talking about big rational thoughts about God. No scripture necessary for that. Then we're going to move to Jesus Christ's relationship with all religions, not just one. Then we'll move to all four Gospels and what they teach us about Jesus. And then we're going to talk about the larger context of John 13 to 17. And then we'll wrap it up by talking about John 14, 6 specifically. Does that sound like a good time to you? Okay, there's seven of you that are excited. The rest of you we're going to get by the end of this sermon. Let's start at the bottom. Big rational thoughts about God. All right, I want all of you to imagine that you're on a beach, and you're enjoying your time at the beach. You're walking around, you're there with friends, but all of a sudden you're enjoying yourself so much, you don't realize that you're suddenly alone. And at that very moment that you say to yourself, wait, where did all my friends go? You turn to your right, and right there is God. Just imagine what you would do in response to that. God is right there in all of God's visible manifestation, and God speaks to you. And God says, I need a favor from you. Now, you would look at the Almighty, no matter what you believe about the Almighty, and my guess is you would say, whatever you ask, O creator of the universe. And imagine that God says to you, I want you to make a list. Now, at this point, if this is all the creator is asking you to do, I can imagine that you'd be like me and say, like, I can make a list of anything you want, God. Just tell me what. And imagine then that God says to you, I want you to make a list of all the people you think are worthy of getting into heaven. All of them. I want to hear who you come up with, who's worthy to be into heaven, and who's not. And I want you to spend the rest of your life creating this list. And if you can do that for me, then we'll get to the end of time, and I will consult with you as to who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Now, at this point, you turn to God and say, I have some questions, and right when you say questions, God disappears, because that's the way God seems to behave in this story, right? So let's say you spend your whole life making this list. You're trying to figure out what to do with the politicians who are crooked. You're trying to figure out what to do with the dictators that oppress people. You're trying to figure out what to do with the people who have personally betrayed you. And you write the list, and you look at this list, and you say, look, I've got way more people in the saved column than the not-so-saved column. I'm kind of proud of myself, right? And let's imagine, then, that you get to the end of time, and you're there at the pearly gates. There's a long line of people who are figuring out if they're going to be in heaven or not. And God approaches you and says, this is my friend here, and this person's going to help me decide who goes in and who goes out. And at that point, you start to freak out a little bit, right? And as you are starting to freak out, you turn to God and you say, God, I'm not sure my list is accurate. I'm not sure it's complete. And God says, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to mention, I'm making a list too. And I've made a list of all the people I think are worthy to get into heaven and all the people that I don't think are worthy to get into heaven. Now, it's here that the thought experiment stops. And I want you to compare your list to God's list, right? My question to you at this point is, do you really think your list will be more inclusive than God's list? Do you really think so? 
Do you think your list will be more generous than God's list? Do you really think your list will be more forgiving than God's list? No, of course not. When we think about our humanity, and Christians believe that as human beings, we are made in the image of God, what we can obviously think about God just rationally here is that God is more generous, inclusive, and forgiving than any one human being can hope to be. So think of the most inclusive, generous, forgiving human being you can think of. God is far more generous, inclusive, and forgiving than that person, right? And if we really believe this and trust this about God, this means something very clearly. This means that anyone following God will become more generous, inclusive, and forgiving. If this is God and we're following God, this is the path to what it means to be a follower of God, someone who is willing to become more generous, inclusive, and forgiving. And if we know this on a rational, logical level, we read John 14, 6, and we say, mm, something's wrong here. Because we're supposed to be following God, and God should always lead us into greater inclusion, generosity, and forgiveness. But this verse, this saying from Jesus, seems to lead us in the opposite direction of that. So if you have that sense that something's wrong, it's because you've rationally thought about God, and you know that this is not the way that God would leave, even though Christians say that this guy is the Son of God, and it seems very black and white. Which moves us from the bottom level of the pyramid up one level to Jesus Christ's relationship with all religions. Not just with Christianity, all religions. Now, to talk about this, I want to put up a map of the world, and I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you to point to where God is on this map, right? So imagine where you would point on this map, and I have some good news for you. Wherever you point is correct. But also, I've got some bad news for you because it's also incorrect, right? And if you respond to this question and say, well, God is everywhere, man, <laughs> you are correct, but you're also incorrect. Because people have said, I experienced God here at this time and in this place. Let's move from a map of the world to the map of time that goes all the way from the beginning to the present, right? Now, imagine that I ask you to come up here on stage and, and say to you, please point to when God is. Well, wherever you point is correct, but it's also incorrect, right? Because all the stories we value about God happen at a specific time to a specific person. But God has interacted with multiple generations from the beginning of humanity. And if anyone refuses to point and say, well, God exists outside of time, they're correct, but they're also incorrect, right? And when you think about the map of the world and the map of time, what this teaches us is something that is really important to understand about the character of God. The nature of God is paradoxical. God is both transcendent and intimate. God is both specific and universal. God is both particular and ubiquitous. You can't avoid either of these realities. And the minute you say God is only particular, you shrink the presence of God. And the minute you say God is only ubiquitous is the moment that God becomes this vapor that barely interacts with us, right? Now, here's what I love about Christian theology. We have a doctrine that talks about the paradoxical nature of God. That doctrine is depicted 
in a painting by Leonardo da Vinci from about 500 years ago. The name of the doctrine is Jesus Christ. That's the name of our doctrine. Now, Jesus was Jesus' real human name, but Christ is a title that the church has given him. It's from the Greek word Christos. It means anointed one, and it's the part of his name that references that he is both fully human but also fully divine, right? In other words, very specific but also very universal. Let me show you how these differences work. Oh, one other thing here. You'll notice Jesus Christ in this painting is holding up two fingers. It's to represent that his two realities are paradoxical in nature and part of who he is, both human and divine. And anytime you see Western art with two fingers, that's what Jesus is doing. Now, let's show how this looks practically, right? If I were to ask you, please point on this map to where Jesus lived, there's only one correct answer. First century Palestine, right there. You can't say, well, Jesus was in Australia once. No archaeological evidence whatsoever for that, right? But if you ask, please point to where the Christ lives, well, for that, you'd have to circle the whole map and then circle outside the circle of the map, right? Now, let's imagine that we go to time and we have the beginning and the present. Let's make things a little simpler, shall we? Let's go back to 2023 BCE to 2023 CE. And let's imagine that I asked you, please point to when Jesus lived. Well, my friends, this is very easy because our whole calendar is built around this. Zero, my friends. That's the answer. There's no other answer that's possible with this. But if I asked you, well, point to when the Christ lives, you'd have to circle the whole timeline and say, even beyond this timeline, God exists outside of time, or the Christ exists outside of time, right? And so all of a sudden, God is very present in specific scenarios, but also present in an omnipresent scenario. And when I think about what this means, it has profound implications for who we are today. A few years ago, a pop star named Kesha released a song called Him. And this song, if I would have sang it at church when I was younger, I would have gotten in big trouble and gotten a talking to from religious leaders around me, right? She says in this song, this is a hymn for the hymnless, kids with no religion. Yeah, we keep on sinning. Yeah, we keep on singing. Hymn for the hymnless. No, don't need no forgiveness because if there's a heaven, don't care if we get in. This is a hymn, hymn, hymn for how we live, live, live. In other words, Kesha has experienced from religion that line in the sand moment, right? And she fully acknowledges that religion thinks that she's outside of what religious people should do, right? And she accepts that and she embraces it, and she writes a song for those who are outside with her. Now, if we're serious about the Christ and understanding what that part of Jesus' name means, the Christ is just as present among the hymnless as Christ is among those who are singing hymns in church. There is no distinction there because we believe in the omnipresence of God. Now, you're not going to believe this, but this goes way bigger than Kesha, right? And if you go to the cave of Hira where Muhammad claims that Muhammad interacted with God, well, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe that God was just as present in that cave as God was on Calvary. If you go back to the Mayans 2,500 years ago and you look at their religious architecture and you think to yourself, was God here too? Well, the Christ was, yes. Yeah, God was just as present there as God was to this day. Now, they use different language to describe what was God in their minds, but there's nothing different between 
God existing there in the way God exists today. If you go back to Judaism, you go back to the year 70, there's this moment where Rome is attacking Jerusalem. And there's all these courageous, heroic stories about rabbis or people sneaking out scrolls from the Torah and from the history books, and they are risking their lives to make sure that their heritage is preserved. Well, I believe that God, the Christ, was present among them while they were sneaking these scrolls out, and we are the benefactors of their courageous work. Not only that, but if you think about the Jewish tradition, there's this understanding that God is the most present on Mount Zion during this time. Well, across the way was another mountain named Mount Gerizim. This is where Samaritans believed that God was most present, and they had these two dueling mountains, and as you can imagine, this led to all sorts of theological debate. Well, the fact is, God was just as present on Mount Gerizim as God was present on Mount Zion. I believe that God was just as present thousands of years ago under a tree next to the Buddha when he became enlightened. And I believe that God was really present, just as present as today, in the Indus River Valley when people first started discussing the ideas of Hinduism. And God was just as present there as God was on the cross. Because we believe in Jesus Christ, we can talk about the specific natures of God, but also the universal natures of God. And when you look at all of these different religions, you realize that there's something that this doctrine can teach us about what it means to relate to these religions. I have heard some progressive people say, oh, well, religions, they're all the same thing with the same goal. I don't think that's helpful. In fact, I would say the idea that all religions are the same is counterproductive to the work of the Christ. And the reason I say that is because I have seen my white siblings that are Christians say, like, I don't see color, I just see the human being, we don't need to pay attention to race. Well, the problem with that conversation is you wipe out heritage, ancestors, and stories with just one sentence. And if Christians come along and they say, like, well, all religions are the same, we've got this doctrine that says Jesus Christ, we're wiping out all of this beautiful history, culture, writings, ancestors, all of these remarkable stories that have led people to say something like, I need to talk about the way I'm experiencing God or the unifying force or all things that are beyond my control. So the idea that all religions are the same is counterproductive to who the Christ is because there's something valuable in the way that all the diversity of human beings have encountered the Christ in their own culture. And when you start to believe this, you start to be able to say things as a Christian, things like, you know, being a Muslim is a beautiful thing. Being somebody who is Jewish is a beautiful thing. Being Buddhist is beautiful. Being Hindu is beautiful. Being Samaritan is beautiful. All of it is people talking about this mysterious thing that Christians call the Christ, some call gods, some call gods, but each of these different traditions is valuable in its own right. I point all of this doctrine out because the theology of Jesus Christ always leads us into deeper appreciation for other religions. When we really say the name Jesus Christ and mean it, that's where we're going. But it doesn't stop there, because I've found that it also gives me a deeper appreciation for being Christian. And when people say, oh, no, 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 but that's not who Jesus was. Jesus did this or Jesus did that. I would say you are overemphasizing the Jesus part of Jesus Christ, and you need to t embrace more of the Christ nature of Jesus Christ. And it's all to speak to this idea that the nature of God is paradoxical which moves us to the third floor of the pyramid. We move up to what all four Gospels teach us about Jesus. 
Now, most people know this, but if you don't, no problem at all. There are four books that start the New Testament, and they all tell the story of Jesus in their own way. These are not four sequels to each other. They are four separate biographies on the life of Jesus. And they were not written at the same time. Almost all scholars agree that Mark was written first, sometime around the year 70. And then Luke and Matthew were written around the same time, but in very different places. And then John came along in 100 CE and wrote his version of the life of Jesus. Now, I point this out because most Christians don't understand that when these books were written, they were not meant to be read together. They were meant to be read by themselves. And so when Mark sat down to write the story of Jesus, he didn't think to himself, man, I hope John covers that story later. Or man, I hope Luke gets that one story because that's really important. I've only got 16 pages I can work with here. No, Mark said, I'm going to write the story of Jesus, and this is what it is. Luke and Matthew did the same thing, and John did the same thing. Now, let me show you the implications of this, and this is often misunderstood by Christians today. If I were to ask you, what is the most important verse or idea in all four of the Gospels, and we could somehow interview every Christian in America, I would bet my life savings and my house on the number one answer being John 3.16. I would just give everything I have. I'd say, this is what everybody's going to say. And John 3.16 is a very famous verse within Scripture. Even if you're not a churchy person, you might know this verse. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever should believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. And Christians, in near-unanimous fashion, I believe, would say, this is it. If we could take only one verse from all four Gospels, this is the verse we take. This is the thesis statement of the Gospels, I've heard some say. Which is great. There's just one problem. And that problem looks like it's small at the beginning, but the closer you look at it, the bigger it becomes. Because we have four different Gospels, and if this is the most important thing to know about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record it. They skip over that. Not only that, they don't even record the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record John 3.16. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, I tried to come up with the most complete list possible. I came up with four things that it means, and I think that this tells us a lot about how the Bible is written. The first thing that it potentially means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were unaware that Jesus said John 3.16. They were just unaware of it, so how could they possibly include it if they didn't know Jesus said it? The second option is they were aware that Jesus said this, but they chose not to include it. They heard that Jesus said uh, that God so loved the world, and they thought, meh, doesn't really help the story. We can leave it on the cutting room floor. Option C is the claim that Jesus said this was disputed. So let's say that Mark is writing his story, and he asks one of his disciple bros, he's like, hey, did Jesus say that God so loved the world? And his friend James is like, mm, no, some people said he did. I asked him once, and he didn't actually say it. So Mark, trying to preserve the reputation of his gospel, said, I'm not going to include it. It's a possibility. And then there's option D. And Christians don't like option D, but it's a possibility. And that is Jesus never actually said this. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus never actually said it, but it's a possibility for the reason that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't include it in their gospel, right? And so when we look at these four Gospels and the fact that we think that John 3.16 is the most important thing, we have to acknowledge that three Gospels don't include it. And what this tells us 
is that the only thing we really know for sure is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not find a John 3.16 to be essential to tell the story of Jesus. Whether they knew it existed or not, they were like, I can still tell the story of Jesus without this famous verse. The story of Jesus is still complete in my mind because I'm writing the story of Jesus from my perspective, and I don't necessarily need this. It doesn't mean they're opposed to it, but it does mean that they were like, story of Jesus still stands. Now, I point all of this out because we are talking about a specific verse in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, no one gets to the Father unless they go through me. And while Jesus is very clear, we have to acknowledge that only one gospel includes this phrase of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not record Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. Well, what does that mean? One of four things, right? It means that either A, they were unaware that Jesus said this, B, they were aware Jesus said it, but chose not to include it, C, the claim that Jesus said this was disputed, or D, Jesus never actually said this. And while one option may resonate with you more than another, the thing it teaches us that is so valuable is that the only thing we really know for sure is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not feel that John 14, 6 was essential to telling the story of Jesus. They felt the story of Jesus could still stand without Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this is something that is hard for me to say out loud because I was raised in a church that loved John 14, 6. In fact, I even heard that it was foundational to the faith. But what the proper response should have been at that moment is if somebody said, this is foundational to understanding how G who Jesus is, a better response would have been me saying, well, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, 75% of the gospel authors did not feel that this was necessary or essential to tell Jesus' story. It wasn't, it, it, they told the story and still felt like it mattered. And so I'm telling you this because if you think to yourself, I love the Jesus story, that line bothers me, I can say this very quietly, but I want you to know it's okay if you don't think this teaching is essential to Jesus' story too. You're well within the tradition. If you're like, nah, not a fan of that one, kind of goes the opposite way of who I understand God to be, and you are more than Christian if you say that. This moves us up one more level to the second level of the pyramid, the larger context of John 13, 17. Now, as I was growing up, I heard this verse frequently, and I often pictured Jesus telling this verse or saying these words like this. This is not how Jesus said these words. Jesus was at his last supper in John 14, and he's much better, it's much more accurate to picture Jesus saying these words like this. Surrounded by his disciples. Now, what's also important to understand is that this is not the beginning of Jesus' conversation with his disciples at the Last Supper. That starts in chapter 13, and this conversation Jesus takes for another five chapters. He talks a lot, and five chapters is a lot when you consider that the Gospel of John is only 22 chapters long. So, this is a significant speech and this verse right here is often cherry-picked out of the speech without knowing what the larger speech is about. The speech begins in John chapter 13 with Jesus saying, I give you a new commandment, love one another, and you're to love one another the way I have loved you. That's the thesis statement of all that Jesus is saying, including John 14, 6, right? And then Jesus, a few verses later, he's talking about heaven, and he's like, look, don't stress out. Don't let your hearts be troubled. 
You have faith in God, have faith in me as well. In God's house, there are many dwelling places. Otherwise, how could I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? He's saying to his disciples, hey, are you stressed out about end times or heaven or eternal life or any of that? Just, just calm down. Remember, there's lots of space in heaven. The kingdom of God stretches its arms out wide to include so many different people. And then from there, he talks about John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Now, when you hear these other verses, the question that arises when I look at these verses is this. Why did we emphasize John 14, 6 over the other two? Why did John 14, 6 get the priority over the new commandment of loving one another? Why is it that we didn't emphasize the many and don't stress out about the end times and that God's kingdom is huge? And the reason why is because human beings, particularly in regards to religion, tend to emphasize that which is frightening over that which is generous. That does not mean that we are being faithful to the tradition. It just means that we are so scared and Jesus is trying to tell us in this story, you don't need to be scared. You don't need to worry. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And what you choose to emphasize matters when it comes to spirituality. I used to believe it was impossible or it was unfaithful to pick and choose from Scripture which verses to prioritize. The older I've gotten, I realize it is impossible to not pick and choose. There's too many verses. So which ones are you picking and choosing and which ones are you emphasizing? Because I grew up in a system that chose to emphasize that the only way to God was through a belief in Jesus. Which brings us to the last level of the pyramid. We move up to what John 14, 6 means to me. Now, I've heard multiple teachers say this, but I have found it to be very helpful in regards to this one verse. While Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, I have found that Christians often interpret this verse this way. Correct beliefs about me are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through correct belief. Another way that Christians interpret this is they say, participating in one specific religion is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through this one specific religion. Or one that I have seen firsthand, and it's probably my least favorite of the bunch, is something like this. Whatever the person quoting me says is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through obeying the person who is quoting me. And this is how I've seen people hold this verse, draw lines in the sand, and say, actually, the love of God isn't that big. Because Jesus said, it's only Christians who understand God. So what do we do with this verse? I have found that the best way to understand this verse is that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, to replace that with the experience of Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the experience of Christ. Now, you may feel like I'm being too liberal with the text. I will tell you there's a long tradition that says that John is the most divine of all the Gospels and the fact that it's written from Jesus being a divine person more than the other three. And when we talk about that's what Christ means, it fits in with the literary scholarship of this book. So when we look at these four different Gospels, you may ask, what is the experience of Christ? To which I would respond, for me, the experience of Christ can be found in the stories that all four gospel writers agreed were essential to telling the story of Jesus. 
And while I tend to de-emphasize stories that only one of the gospel writers wrote, when all four of them say, you know what, that part has to be in, we should pay attention to it as Christians. Because I believe that this is the experience of Christ that is ultimately divine in the way that is paid. So let's look at all the stories that are found in all four gospels and see if it paints a picture of what it means to live the experience of Christ. The first story that's in all four Gospels is the baptism of Jesus by John. And this baptism may seem like a big deal to you. It may not seem like a big deal to you. The fact is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all disagree on the details, but they all agree that Jesus was at some point baptized by John the Baptist. Now, a little bit of context. Jesus was in a religious system that had a monopoly on the forgiveness of sins. They would charge people money to be forgiven by God. And because of that, they started jacking up the prices, which meant that to be forgiven by God was a privilege for the rich. And so a man named John the Baptist went out into the wilderness, and he said, hey, this isn't really in the Bible, but if you come dunk in these waters, then God will forgive your sins. And it may seem strange to you today, but it was a radical humanitarian act back in Jesus' day. It's like these people were all of a sudden, who had been scorned and pushed to the side by a religious system, were all of a sudden validated in their humanity. And the reason this is important is because when Jesus has a choice, he starts his whole ministry. Every gospel starts with this. He goes out into the wilderness and he chooses the way of the poor. And what this teaches us is that the Christ affirms humanity. The second story that is found in all the Gospels is so important that some Gospels even tell this story twice in their own Gospels. That is when Jesus was speaking to a multitude of crowd, thousands of people, and Jesus looked around and said, oh, these people are hungry. And so Jesus took what they had, divided it among themselves, and everyone had more than enough to eat. This story is highlighted in all four Gospels, and all four writers believe this was essential to understanding who Jesus Christ was, and it teaches us that the Christ feeds the hungry. Another story that all four Gospels record is a story that the details are very different, but the story is still there. It's a story of a woman barging into a room that was reserved only for men and demanding to be validated by Jesus. And Jesus looks at all the other men who have discriminated against this woman, woman and says to them, she belongs here. You see, the Christ eradicates discrimination. Another story that is really significant that all four gospel writers record is when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he doesn't ride on a war horse, he rides on a donkey. This is significant because in the book of Zechariah, a donkey person, a person riding on a donkey, is somebody who brings peace, not war. And all four of the writers knew what Jesus was doing, and so it tells us that the Christ brings peace. All four gospel writers record Jesus having a last meal with his friends, and the reason you eat is to live, right? So the Christ lives, and the Christ also talks about in each of these four different gospels about the hope that is there for the world. So the Christ not only lives, but the Christ believes. And then after this meal... Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane and has this dark night of the soul. And while the Christ believes, the Christ also doubts. And the Christ is also betrayed. After being betrayed by one of his own disciples, Jesus then is hung on a cross and crucified. And in one of the most shocking moments of Scripture, the Christ here dies. 
But it is not the end of the story. Because while they all disagree on the details, all four authors say the same thing in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and lives again. And what it teaches us is that the Christ does not allow death to have the last word. So if you ask yourself, what is the experience of Christ? Well, in the four stories, the common thing they share is that Christ lives, affirms humanity, feeds the hungry, eradicates discrimination, brings peace, doubts, is betrayed, and dies. But the Christ does not allow death to have the last word. My friends, for me, this is the way, the truth, and the life. And I have found that there is no way to encounter God without going through these things. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, my friend betrayed me, Jesus says me too. If you think to yourself like, oh, there's so much death around me, Jesus, the Christ says me too. And this is the path. There's no way around it. You'd say, oh, it would be so nice if I didn't have to deal with death. The Christ story tells us, well, actually, that's part of it. Going through these things is the way to God. And so, my friends, my prayer for you this morning is that you may live the experience of Jesus Christ and discover a life filled with purpose, truth, and beauty. For we believe this is the way to encounter God. Amen. Thank you.